Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. What up, Buck? This is our first time actually doing the podcast, not together. We got the little video chat going. Uh, so this will be an interesting way to, to do our first podcast, not together. I'd be remiss not to think about Sunday. All the things going on in the world with the pandemic and all the crazy things. Just a little bit of a gutting thing for me and someone that brought so much joy to our family and to so many people, Alex Trebek, the Jeopardy host. You know, our family, we loved it. We compete against each other. It's one of the Gilbert family traditions is sitting down watching Jeopardy. And so I will miss Alex. Hopefully he's up in heaven and he still gets an opportunity to, to be the man on Jeopardy. Um, but I'll miss you, buddy. And takes us into today's topic, Buck. You know, one that I'm really passionate about, Zen Tennis. Yeah, and for uh, Zen Tennis, you know, it sort of got me thinking. Of, I like that's what I like to call it. And then, but then it sort of got me thinking, like, well, you know, let's get really to the root of the the definition, you know, and like, what is Zen? And, and that is peaceful and calm. So when you're talking about getting out there for something like that, it's just a peaceful and calm hit, and it's really all about kind of letting the body take over, quieting your mind, and just getting long, sustainable rallies, you know, 30 balls, 50 balls, you know, and when you're playing with a partner, that means finding a pace that, you know, both of you are comfortable hitting at consistently where you're not hitting too hard to the point where too many misses start creeping in. So it's really just trying to find that rhythm and consistency and really keeping it uh, calm out there and peaceful. And there's always the wall is the option too, if you don't have a partner. You know, it's funny is we're also used to competing. And the greatness I call of a Zen hit is not that you're trying to not accomplish something, but you're actually just trying to get into a frame of mind, not competing, sometimes maybe kind of just doing things with yourself, but let's say me and you, we go out and hit one of the great joys that I have. You open up six new balls. The first ball to see if you can get it massively fluffy by making 100, 125 balls in a row, kind of starting out at the service line, moving back to three quarters court, moving back to the baseline, but just keeping a nice rally going, not trying to crush the ball, just you're into like this, I call a Zen space where you're just rallying and the accomplishment is just keeping that going. And I love to do that with the wall. The same thing where I just literally take one ball and see how long I can keep it going. We also do it volleying with each other on the service line. And so often you're always trying to accomplish something and then that kind of makes it a competitive thing and then takes you out of the Zen thing. So I really think it's important at least once a week for all players to just kind of get out there and it you're finding enjoyment in just rallying. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, like like you said, we we do it, you know, all the time where 
you know, our hits are really just based on keeping the ball in play and just really sort of enjoying the, the consistency factor and, and really not having a lot of dead time out there where, where you're spend, you know, you see a lot of players where, you know, they're trying to hit big and, you know, they want to push the envelope, but you're spending half the time picking up balls because you're missing so much where, you know, the, the whole idea here is really the vast majority of the time that you're out there, the ball is in play. And, and that's where the good exercise comes from. That's where you break a sweat. And I, I really think that like people think if they do that, you know, they're not really working on their game. And I think working on a consistency really is a big part of working on your game. Buck, I couldn't agree with you more. Sometimes when you do things, you don't realize what the benefit is. The benefit of being able to keep the ball in play. If you can start to do that on the wall or start to do it on a hit, it translates into the match, especially if you're a junior or a club player. And it's kind of getting in that good headspace for starting out. We get so annoyed if one of us misses like within the first 10 shots. It's like, you, it's like you, because you want to be able to do it on the first ball. Or if I go up to the wall and I want to make 50 volleys in a row. It's something that it, it's a game within itself, but it's just the enjoyment factor of doing something specifically like that. And it, it's not playing a game or it's not playing a set but it's just trying to repeat something over and, and you get enjoyment from that. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's, it really gets to the root of it because it doing this sort of like, can, it, at least for me, it, it reminded me in a lot of ways, you know, taking the competitiveness out of it, what it is and like the process that I actually love about playing um, because so many people, they just, you know, you're only associating competing and winning with um, any sort of satisfaction uh, when you're out there. And, and I, I, you try to, this is great because you're just trying to find satisfaction in really just being out there on the court and really in just, just hitting as opposed to any gratification from, from winning or, or being, you know, ultra competitive out there. Buck, when we had three months during the pandemic where all the tennis was closed, and I would like maybe sneak down to the beach and if I could hit on the wall or on, over on a construction site, a couple of doors down. I've hit on the wall my whole life. You know, I, I'm not really into, I don't meditate. I don't do yoga. I should, a lot of things. But really the wall for me is my meditation. It is my Zen. It is for me the biggest enjoyment maybe my whole tennis life is just going out and having a 15-minute hit, me, the ball, and the wall. And sometimes I remember in a kid, I would just draw a box on the wall. How many times in a row can I make it in the box and just keep the rally going? And that, that, that to me is great joy, you know, where you're just trying to do something simple like that. I, I think it's kind of like, it's cool to hear you say that because – I think so many people think of you as like the guy that loved to like win more than anybody else, you know, and, you know, did what it took to win more than anybody else. But really it's like you, you, you have this full on passion just for, you know, playing itself and just for being out there in itself. And I think that to me is sort of like the foundation 
of everything else. If you don't have that just joy and in, in, in feeling of like being content and just being able to be out there hitting on the wall, rallying, then I don't see how really when the going gets tough, you have the, the same level uh, of intensity day in and day out, you know, when you are playing competitively. When we hit and we hit a lot, we, we don't compete. You know, maybe we, maybe we do some crosses. We do a volley to you in one corner, but we're just having a groove session. Every once in a while when I hit with my friend Vinny Van Patten, he's like my, my older brother. Within a few minutes, okay, let's play a seven-pointer down the line. Let's play this. It's all about we got to compete. And, and I said, you know, it's funny. And all of a sudden, I, it goes from that groove hitting to like, okay, there's something on the line. I don't mind competing, but actually at this point in my life, I actually enjoy hitting more than I enjoy competing. If I have to compete, I will. But it's funny as my buddy Vinny he has to compete first. He doesn't see the the Zen and just hit it. It's not necessarily like there's a there's a right or a wrong between the two. It's just that I think that the point is that there's a there's a place for both. And I was gonna say I, I do like when when we're rallying, you just crank up the dial a little bit as you get more warmed up and more into the practice to see what sort of pace and what sort of exertion you know you can put into hitting while still being able to maintain being consistent you know and, and then you know once you go over a little bit and you do start missing that's when you go okay I, got, I gotta draw it drop back just a little bit and I think that can actually be really helpful for like a lot of juniors when they're playing you know once it translates into playing matches knowing what zone that they can get to before too many errors start creeping in and knowing what sort of like neutral, you know, level they're capable of playing at. Well said, Buck. I feel like so many players turn the dial up before they're ready. And when they do that, that leads to like, I call littering up a stat sheet early winner, you know, make one or two good ones, miss five. So I feel like in the sense, it's almost like making a bunch of layups and five and eight footers. You have the confidence. Now you move back, top of the key, three-pointers. So when you start to make a bunch of balls, you have a little more confidence to all of a sudden hit the same ball, but now hit it 10, 20, 30% harder. And so I feel like that a lot of players, especially like juniors and like competitive four or five players, it's like you go too fast, which leads to a lot of missing. And then when you get to a lot of missing, that that you get into erratic play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, completely. And so now like shifting into like uh, some of your childhood memories, I know you had a, a guy that so, – so just for some context, you grew up playing at a park in Piedmont called Davy Tennis Stadium where all kinds of – you know, matches going on. And it was just really like the quintessential competitive tennis park situation. And, but there was one guy there that didn't like playing the matches so much and was just all about hitting. So if you could tell, tell us a bit about that guy. This place, Davy Tennis Stadium, was the ultimate competitive park. And they used to have a day called Free Monday. It wasn't like it was expensive to play. I mean, it was 25 or 50 cents to rent a court back in the day in the 70s. But 
I had running matches with umpteen people. And there was one guy there. He was about, I'm going to say, eight years older than me. And I would hit with him a lot when I was like 11, 12. His name was Don Frega. And so many guys that I would play, it was like within two or three minutes, warm up, we're playing a set. And you keep track of your sets. But this guy, Don Frega, maybe he got it before anybody else did. He used to love to just hit. And he would always say, you know, let's have a little groove. Or you want me to work you out? And I would always think, like, why does this guy want to, you know, like work you out? It, it, isn't it about his game? But it was always about let's like, let's volley. Let's go cross. Let's do, you know. So it was like he wasn't competing, but yet he was always in a good mood. And you know what else he did that like people would say you're crazy about? Now, he used to love the groove and he would wear ankle weights these giant ankle weights and his, he wasn't a very tall guy, but let me tell you, his calves were swollen, but he would just love to like, and then all of a sudden, like if the, maybe you were playing a match afterwards, he would feel so good about having the good hit. And then you play somebody else and he might do that with two, three different people. And then he would get such a good workout just working people out, but he wouldn't be strung out because he wasn't winning or losing the match. You know, I like what you said about how he, um, just like how everybody else was looking to like get into playing sets within three or four minutes and how you were almost surprised at the time, like that, you know, he wasn't thinking just about himself and his own game when he's out there. This guy is really sort of like thinking about not only himself, but like who's on the other side of the net and trying to get like this almost like harmony going. And I think so many players, you, you do just think when it's a practice, they're still only thinking, you know, what am I working on? What, what, what do I want to do? And forgetting that it's, that it's a two-way street and the, the more sort of harmony you can get with the other person that you're out there with, I mean, I think a lot of times the, the better the hit's going to be. But yeah, I, I mean, obviously this guy is, is right in line with, What'd you say his name was one more time? Sorry, Don Frega. He was about yeah, Don, Don Don Frega. It was, he was he's right in line with years, what we're talking about. About eight years older than me, and, and and I think a lot of people in the park were like because he was a good player, but I don't know if something happened to him or something why he didn't. But he got such enjoyment out of working you out, and like I said, the, I saw him sometimes besides the ankle weights, weight vest. He was like. <laughs> So he's going for the workout for sure. Yeah. And, but it just kind of something that I always never forgot because I grew up at, at this park that was so competitive and everything was about your set scores. Everything was about the only person that I didn't really play sets with was my, my sister. It was two years older. We always hit cross court. We always hit down the middle. We always just hit. We didn't compete against each other. So, you know, it, but it was a little more competitive than a groove because it's like you're trying to hit aggressively and make the person miss. But with Don, it wasn't about that. It was more about the groove. Yeah, exactly. And then from, from Don to another uh, absolute uh, tennis legend that is the father of one of your really good friends, so Torben Ulrich, who's uh, Lars Ulrich's father. The, Lars is the drummer for Metallica. And Torben was a great touring pro for a long time in the 60s and I think beyond. He's got a gray beard like Gandalf the Wizard. But, I mean, 
he's uh, the the picture image of a of a zen out person. I think he goes for long meditation sessions every morning. He's an artist, and he is all about, I think, just finding that inner peace when you're out there on court. 1978, Buck. I'm maybe I'm just about to be 17 years old, and I'm going to hit with Jeff Broviak, um, who was a NorCal legend. And he won the NCAAs, I think, about 1970. And I think at one point he was about 11 or 12 in the world. Maybe he was 20 in the world then. And I I couldn't believe he was going to hit with me because certainly I was not like top five in the country junior by any means. So I'm a little uptight. I'm going to the Claremont Country Club to hit with him. And that um, at that time, Torben was mentoring him. So I get there, I'm, you know, ready to go. And all of a sudden, practice doesn't start. It's it's kind of like, all right, let's visualize practice. Let's get in the right frame. So literally for about 45 minutes, it was like getting in the right headspace about before you're going to hit and then shadow hitting without hitting. It was all this stuff. I was like, man, when, when are we going to get after it? But they they got into this space before they hit. And, and Little did I know that Torben in the late 60s did a movie about hitting on the wall, like getting in that Zen space, hitting on the wall, which I've seen now as an adult, but I didn't know that then. But it's incredible to see somebody get into a place of this state that they got in. And I was like, kept thinking, like, let's get after it. Let's get after it. I want to see, I mean, how much more I got to improve. But it was like, it was so actually relaxing to do this. When I started hitting with him 45 minutes later, I forgot that I was nervous. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, and I mean, I know that there's a lot of, you know, studies going into the power of meditation and the power of being able to kind of calm your mind have power of control over your thoughts so that when you do get out there, you can, you have a bit of more of a, of a, an awareness when, you know, to control your nerves, to control any like sort of anger that's getting in. So I, I definitely think there's something to be said. And I feel like it's, you know, for what Torben was doing um, and what Torben was teaching. And then I, I probably feel like that's maybe made this like longer lasting impact on you and the way you like to play now long after your career is done. A hundred percent. From what Torben told me, he was like, why are you rushing? Take your time, warm up nicely, visualize. And then when you hit, hit soft and warm up. So I'd never done that before and, it, you know, really thought about it. And it other when I started grooving with Don or my sister, we didn't start really slow. But Torben was like, start really slow and build your way up. And it, it made a lot of sense that... Still to this day, that was over 40 years ago that I really have that ingrained and in how I start. Having like that slow buildup to whether you're hitting groundies or hitting serves, I, I think is so important in, in really getting the rhythm and being able to actually sus- like sustain playing a little bit bigger. Because if you just try to make this leap from like a warm up to hitting, you know, 100%, in two minutes, I just think that there's so much lost in terms of rhythm. And, and it's, it's, it is having that, that patience to really work your way into a practice slowly and not make huge 
you know, increases and, you know, and, and how quickly you're ramping it up. Zen patience go together. And so many tennis players, patience early on goes out the window and occasionally you're hot and then boom, you just blow through, you know, the stop sign. But most of us at the start, I call that first 10, 15 minutes is so crucial. And it, and if you get off to a good rhythm, it's amazing how many tennis players will tell you, Buck, that, man, you know, I was, I was seeing the ball like a watermelon today. And I, for me, seeing the ball like a watermelon is getting into a good groove of not missing. And when you're not missing, now all of a sudden you feel like maybe I can take some more risk. And then, you know, in regards to like you and I playing, I'll definitely get, you know, a lot of people, you know, that'll ask me like, oh, like when, when, who wins when you and your dad play? Like, you know, do you guys play sets? Do you guys play points? Like, you know, what's like, you know, like who, who usually wins when you guys play? Because that is, you know, that's the nature of, of tennis. People want to know, know, you know, where we stand. And I always tell them, I'm like, we, we never play. I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint, but we, we literally. We, no, we hit all the time, but we don't. No, compete. no, sorry. Yeah, we. We, we always hit, but we, well, we never compete because it is to an extent, you know, when I was younger, I mean, it was, it was tough having the, you know, for any kid, you know, having the, the father coach combo. And that was why, you know, I had a lot of other coaches too, because it's hard to separate um, the advice you're trying to give me from like taking things personally. So I think if we'd been starting to play competitively on top of that, it would have just been too much. We competed in two things though, ping pong, and oh, like yeah. every, that... and horse, and then you like you wanted to beat me badly in both of them. Yeah, as crazy as I would go when we played ping pong, especially like you, you knew right there it wouldn't be a good idea if we we took that over to the tennis court. That was already enough freaking emotion right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. So I just tell people like we always just hit, we just rally, we go for a light forty minute hit where we just try to make a lot of balls and we, we never play any points and we're both like perfectly happy with that. Like, honestly, it's, it's probably the most enjoyable consistent thing I, I've gotten out of playing tennis is just getting out there for those hits with you where we just get in that Zen mode. Since I've been a little kid to 59 years old now, I think about, you know, because when I learned to play with a little wood racket, you couldn't be make the ball if you didn't hit center. So I still think about hitting center and just making clean contact. I get so annoyed with myself even now when we're just hitting, if I miss a couple of balls or I miss hit one. So that's like my goal when we're hitting is to just make balls, hit center, keep the rally going. And that that actually gives me a lot of enjoyment. You know, that, you know, if I have to play in some event and I got to play doubles and do some things, fine. But I actually get way more enjoyment out of just grooving and hitting and especially our sessions where we just hit for 40 minutes. We're, we're not trying to accomplish, you know, a lot, but we're trying, you know, to get a good hit. And that, that to me is a good accomplishment. It's the, it's the joy of being out there. It's the joy. It's just the joy of hitting, right? The joy of hitting. And I go back to Don Vrega at Davy tennis stadium. He got it way back before I under even, you know, understood it or anybody else at the park understood it this guy's content to just have a good hit and he enjoys 
making other people, you know, what do you want to work on today? All right, we're going to get into some Q&A. And this is kind of a funny transition from Zen Tennis because this next uh, question topic is is very much the the opposite side of the spectrum. Charles from Rhode Island. I, I, I thought this was a pretty, you know, interesting, funny one. So he recently had three of his friends, who he says are hardly tennis fans, ask him about a recent match between Dan Evans and Karen Hachinov at Antwerp. Uh, that was a few weeks back now. And in short, Hachinov he had, had a meltdown after the umpire completely blew a call on an overrule. Like it was, it, it they did show the video. I mean, I mean the replay, and it was three, four inches inside the baseline. It was one of the worst overrules I've ever seen. And but basically, there was continuous heated exchanges between you know both Hachinov and Evans with that umpire throughout the rest of the match, which Evans ended up winning in a tight three-setter. And at Antwerp, which is a bit of a rarity these days, there, there was no Hawkeye. There was no review, so the calls were just having to stand. It was old school in that way. And so, you know, it got Charles thinking, a match like that match, which was a quarterfinal match at a smaller ATB event, That's it's probably a pretty forgettable match, even if it's a good match, you know, just for a casual fan. But... Because, you know, you had this drama related to the call, you know, and you had this sort of like these heated exchanges, it got Charles wondering whether Hawkeye really is good for the game. And he says he understands that, you know, of course, it improves the integrity and quality of the game. But at the end of the day, the ATP, WTA, Grand Slams, they're an entertainment product. And he wants to know, you know, if there's entertainment value in in leaving some opportunity for missed calls. Okay, it's an interesting question, but I couldn't disagree more in that just thinking about that meltdown that Hatchinoff had. I had a meltdown 10 times worse in the finals of Bear Sea, 87, three all in the fifth against Tim Mayotte, and ball was out by two inches, no call. And I end up losing the point. I completely lose it on the umpire. And obviously, no, in 1987, no Hawkeye. Had there been Hawkeye, they could see, boom, the call was two inches out. Boom, I break, and I'm two games from winning. As it turns out, I have a meltdown. I don't win another point. Lose 10 straight points, 6-3 and a fifth. So with Hawkeye, it gives you a quick vision Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. It gives the player, it gives the umpire, it gives everybody the ability moving along. How about the Raider game on Sunday? Had there been no Hawkeye, it's called a touchdown, game over, Chargers win. But then they go to replay, see that the ball moved on the ground, call reversed, Raiders win the game. So I understand that there's a human side, but the human side to me is get the call right. And a lot of times it could save the meltdown and it can help the player. It can help the umpire. It's like, geez, I really did footfall. I really did miss. Geez, I thought that ball was in. It really was out. So I do think that more than anything, if you have this ability to, to help the players, 
I think it's great benefit for the game and it will lead to less of these meltdowns and lead to more of actually getting the call right. So I'm actually kind of happy to play devil's advocate on this one because everything you're saying from a player standpoint, from an umpire standpoint is a hundred percent right. I mean, there's no way that it's not going to give the players and the officials a better, you know, sort of clarity footing for the clarity and, and add more integrity to the sport. Like no one, no one's arguing that. But I think what you get a little bit clouded in terms of, you know, only thinking of it from the perspective as a former player. And I, if I'm just saying from a perspective of a fan and all you care about or not all you care about, but maybe you care a little bit more about just the pure entertainment value. For me, there is value in watching a, a, a blow up like I, it, that match caught my attention a lot more than it would have otherwise. And like if I'm watching like Kyrgios have a breakdown where he's sm- smashing rackets in the tunnel in Cincinnati, like, like yeah, it's it's not a good look for the integrity of the sport. But at the same time, like it's entertaining and it's going to get eyes on the sport that wouldn't be on the sport otherwise. I mean, obviously, that's like the whole, you know, the John McEnroe effect and from back in the day. And like, hey, 1999, I'm with Andre. He's playing the Bear Sea final. They have a giant video board. And I think it was between the second and third set, they play the meltdown of me from 12 years before. Andre hadn't seen it. He's watching it on court. I'm getting pissed just sitting there thinking about it. Somebody even asked me about it on Twitter yesterday, and I'm still pissed 33 years ago about that terrible call that was two inches out and I was robbed. But I do believe, I understand what you're saying about the meltdown, and but as a player. It just gives you that ability to, I call it moving along, that maybe I was wrong, maybe I was right. And then boom, it, it shouldn't have a three game or some lead to some horrendous meltdown that, that man, if I, there was just a quick call and an accurate call, it would be about the tennis. And that's the same between the, 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 the manager and the umpire in baseball. There's the, you know, the, the meltdowns, people like some of that, but let me tell you, most players want to see the correct call. Oh, I think almost every player always wants to see the correct call. I just, I just keep thinking of incidents like obviously the Serena U.S. Open final from a couple of years ago, which is probably the most talked about thing that's happened in tennis the last ten years. Plus, you know that there's that side of it. I think at the end of the day, I, I would hope that fans do want the the thing that they want the most is the highest level of quality play as possible more than the more than just the drama of, of players getting pissed off. So to me, I think, you know, hopefully that, that should win out at the end of the day. And obviously electronic line calling like Hawkeye does help the overall quality of the product. You know, we need it more than anything. Like instead of having a lot of times in the juniors in college where you just have one umpire or no umpires, no linesmen, there's still some crazy cheating and we need it at at the juniors and college level because it, it is dastardly, you know, to lose a match because you're being cheated. It doesn't happen in the pros. You can just get missed calls, but you can lose matches in the juniors in college because you're being cheated and that should never happen. So I hope that one day that we can get like an inexpensive system that helps you, you know, figure that out. 
Yeah, because I was going to say right now, that's, I think, still out of the question cost-wise, you know, and scaling it to the masses of junior and club-level tournaments. But yeah, it would be an amazing thing to see at one point and to, and to really try and clear up, you know, integrity-wise, junior tennis, college tennis, because, yeah, no doubt the, the, the cheating is a, is a factor and it's it's always disappointing to see when it does happen and and every time i see a meltdown like hatching off it just takes me back to the few that i had flashbacks or or, or seeing like McEnroe or connors or other players it used to be more commonplace it's obviously kind of few and far between but they still haven't We, we you know you'll still see them you know could be over you know an incidental a knot up or a a double bounce something you know that, that can happen a mislet so there's still some and i would say my one advice you know having you know worked with some junior players is for for those that do think that they need to you know i don't think most people go into a match thinking that they're going to cheat but it's when things get so heated you know sometimes your mind almost plays tricks on you and balls that are super close you know you start to see them out when maybe they were in but that's, that's really the worst. but really what you're doing if you're giving, you know, if you're, if you are calling it close is you're really only hurting yourself in the long run, because what you want as a player is for your opponent to push you as much as possible. That's how you get better. And essentially you're, you're, you're robbing yourself of that greater challenge if you're calling it too close. So if anything you want it, you know, it's, it's hard to say in this day and age when everything's so ultra competitive and there's college scholarships on the line, you know, down the road, but if you want to get to be the best possible player that you can be, you need to call everything that's that you are not sure about in because that's the only way that you that you're going to get the big, the best possible challenge from your opponent. Well said, Buck. Being fair makes you a better person, and that that's the only way I can see that. Next question, we got one from Kip from Montreal, who he says. I've loved winning ugly for a long time, but now I usually try to apply its lessons to pick up basketball. He says, with COVID, I've gotten back into tennis and took enough lessons to get a workable forehand backhand and serve to play and lose to my better buddies. He says, as as someone who loves the gradual road to improvement in sports, my question is, how best can we amateur players spend our time during a winter? And, you know, he's in Montreal in this case, so a, a rather rough winter in which we will probably try to avoid indoor te- in, in in which we will probably try to avoid indoor tennis and thus can't get our losing in and he also said his instructor has warned him against overdosing on youtube instructional clips so wanted to get your take on that but basically the way i see this question is for anyone that's actually not planning on spending a lot of time on court this winter you know, but still wants to find little ways to improve or at least maintain their game. You know, what advice do you have for them? Well, first of all, winning ugly in basketball. Buck, you've seen me play basketball a ton. I played it. Yeah, I knew you loved it, you know, that that he's using it for basketball as well. Okay. I had a running lefty hook, you know, a little, uh, and I could fight off with the right. And I I would beat almost anybody in horse because I could make lefty shots off the bank and I, I could make these obscure shots. And I was really good, but it was kind of like my tennis. I just found a way. And one thing, if you're not going to get a lot of court time, I think that 
listen, if you can hit on the wall where you're working on just maybe your forehand, you're hitting some serves, you're just working on a couple specific shots. Once you start playing in the spring, you'll be much more ready to play. I feel like if you don't play, but you swing the racket every day, you hit some forehand swings, you hit some backhand swings, all of a sudden the racket feels more comfortable in your hand. But I really think that, hey, if I can hit twice a week on the wall for 30 minutes, I can accomplish a lot of things hitting on the wall. From volleying to hitting overheads off the bounds to working on my serve to hitting forehands. And if you can, you know, get on the court for a few minutes, practice your serve. But more importantly, I think it's hitting and and making sure you just kind of keep rhythm. Because most people, if you go three months without playing, it, it takes you a while to get it back. But you know, it's like if you don't lift for three months, you lose it real quickly. But if you can lift once a week, you, you kind of maintain it longer. So get on the wall and work on things on the wall. And if you do get on that court for just a little bit of time, work on your serve. I do think that, you know, doing, you know, even if you're playing other sports, you know, like, like you're playing basketball or you're playing like indoor soccer or something. I mean, that's certainly a lot more helpful than, than doing nothing. And it's a lot more comparable maybe to keeping the, the, the feet, you know, ready than just maybe run, you know, some of the more like running on a treadmill or, or more basic gym workouts because the movements are more dynamic and it does relate a bit more to tennis. So even if you're doing a different sport, I think it can still translate pretty well. And then maybe you're doing little things like still at least taking good shadow swings in your house with the racket. You know, it's hard if you don't have that racket in your hand in any capacity for three or four months. I mean, it's, I mean, we'd be lying if you said you can maintain your game if you go that long without a racket in your hands. I it was say. about 42 degrees this morning, one of the colder mornings in Malibu. So I was out taking a walk. You, you're gone. I haven't got to hit. So I took my racket with me on the hit uh, on my walk this morning. You know, at like five in the morning, I'm just swinging my forehand, just, you know, hitting some volleys and just believe it or not, just having the racket in your hand, swinging on it. So like tomorrow, I'll go sneak on the wall. I actually have a little better feeling for hitting on the wall because I, I swung my racket for 15 minutes on the walk this morning. I did a little stretch with my racket, but just having it in my hand kind of makes it familiar. So I, I think that if you're not playing much, believe it or not, just kind of holding and swinging. And one little thing that I like, you know, you can do, you're sitting in your chair. You tell yourself forehand. So you switch your grip to your forehand. You tell yourself switch to the backhand. The same with the net. It's just kind of doing little things. Practice your ball toss sitting in the chair. Little things that you can do so when you get back out on the court, you feel a lot like, wow, I don't feel like it's foreign territory at the moment. And, yeah, I think that kind of right, brings us right back to, you know, any closing thoughts on on Zen tennis because, you know, even even those little drills with a racket you can do at home that, that that goes very much in line with things like hitting on the wall and in line with grooving, you know, and just, you know, the overall joy of being out there and, and really the joy of getting to swing a racket. For me, Buck, I mean, one of the, the great pleasures, I, I'm 59. I've been playing tennis since I've been three years old. I've never felt burned out on it. I've never like wanted to take a break from it. I always look forward to hitting. And I think from what we're talking about today, I think some players got to realize 
that we all like to compete. We all like to play. But remember, center yourself. If you're not getting a little Zen hit, make sure that you're doing a little yoga or do a little meditation that you can get yourself kind of in a relaxed place. For me to be in a relaxed place is hitting on the wall. I'm not trying to beat anybody. I'm just trying to have a really good session. Me, the ball, the wall. And I hope, God willing, that when I'm 90 years old, that's 31 years from now, I can still say, I'm trying to make 50 balls in a row. I just made 30 volleys in a row from 15 feet. Those little goals, I I had them when I was a little kid. I still have them now, and I still hope I have them when I'm 90 years old. And this game gives me so much enjoyment. And I think as I'm getting older, I think I enjoy more zen than anything else from tennis, just hitting or working somebody out. I love coaching. You know, so if I'm if you're coaching, you're doing something else. But my own enjoyment from hitting just comes with not trying to accomplish anything. Make balls. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I, I hope I can, I can be ninety out there and still and still grooving as well. And, and I think the one thing too is I think there's a difference in you know hitting for you know just a few minutes where you're trying to do that as opposed to a commitment to a you know a longer you know 30 40 minute stretch you know maybe at least 20 minutes on the wall where you're really staying patient with with that with that groove because I think that's sort of how you can can break past that barrier a little bit and and really sort of have it be all about you know patience and all about the rhythm and really calming down the mind and I think if you do that enough I think, you know, in times that that get more competitive on the court, you know, you can go back to what that feeling was of sort of that calm, uh, you know, that, that you were experiencing when you're just rallying. But the essence of calm is when you're hitting on the wall, you're not moving all over the place. If you're moving all over the place, the wall yeah, is moving yeah, good you. Mention. Yeah. And if you're hitting just straight to the wall, it's hitting it straight back to you. So that's always the goal like hit in a small area, we keep it going. And that's, that's the drill. That's the Zen. Can I keep doing that? And when I miss and I make myself have to, I get, I know it myself, come on. And, you know, refocus, come on, make it. And so I love doing that. Yeah. And all those things come into like balance, efficiency, all those things come into play when you're trying to do that. You know, like you, you know, the old mantra of like, keep the glass of water up on, on top of your head, you know, the imaginary glass of water, but it's that, it's that stillness and efficiency of balance, you know, when, when you're out there, you know, and you'd be even good players. Like I, I haven't seen anyone on your level be able to just hit on the wall and, and not be able to take a single step for over a course of a, a hundred balls because it's just going back and forth and in, in the exact same straight line. Yeah. Cause I've done it so much. And it's like, people say that fed makes it look so easy because he's not doing anything, but he is, he just makes the hard part look easy. But I tell you, for all players, you go out and have that nice groove hit and you, and you do it a little bit more, you'll see a carryover effect in your game, how you're playing. Couldn't agree more. All right. Nice to do it over video chat, Buck. I'll see you soon. I miss hitting. Miss hitting too. We'll, we'll get back out there soon. Okay, buddy. Okay.